Well, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Have you heard that one before? Right? Nobody really knows exactly where it came from. It's been attributed to everyone from, I think, Oprah Winfrey to Pastor Rick Warren. Um, I did some research on it this week, and the first time that anyone could actually record that phrase being used was in a little town in Texas back in 1959. This little local paper was reporting on someone who had spoken at a PTA meeting there. And supposedly that's the first time that the phrase was ever used. But I think it's something that probably is pretty true, isn't it? When we're hurt, we tend to turn around and we tend to, to at least want to hurt other people sometimes. I know that's been true in my life. Maybe it's been true in your life as well. I can still remember uh, several years ago there was someone who claimed to be a Christian and um, who did something that really hurt my wife. And I'm more, more likely to hurt someone who's hurt my wife than someone who's hurt me. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about how I could get back at this person. Way more time than I should have. And what I finally realized is the only person I was hurting by doing that was myself. And, and this morning we're going to talk about how we can take the hurts that come into our lives... And instead of returning a curse for a curse, we're to do what the Bible tells us to do, to return a blessing for a curse. To be able to take the the hurts that come into our lives and exchange them for something else. We're in this, this series this Christmas that's called the Great Gift Exchange, and we're looking at ways that Jesus, by coming Emmanuel, by becoming Emmanuel, God with us, by coming to this earth, taking on the body of a human, how he made it possible for us to take some things in our life that, that are painful and difficult and exchange them for a gift that he wants to give to us. Last week we began that by looking about at how Jesus would, he would take our despair and in return he would give us his hope. We talked about the way that we do that is by seeking Jesus himself and not seeking the solution to our problems. This morning we're going to talk about how we can turn, how Jesus can turn our hurts into his love. And I think that's a really important message that all of us need to understand this Christmas season. We're going to look this morning at Psalm 103. We read that earlier, the worship team did. If you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 103 this morning. I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but I am going to be referring to some parts of that passage, and I'm also going to be asking for your help with a few questions about this passage and helping us to identify some of the important ideas that we're going to develop together today. If I were to ask you this question, what in the New Testament, what is the love chapter? What would your answer be? What's the love chapter in the New Testament? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Talks all about love there. Well, this, I think, is actually the Old Testament equivalent of 1 Corinthians 13. It's a, it's a psalm that's all about God's love for us. And there's a, a term that's used here that, that's really important for us to understand this morning. You'll see this term used four times in the passage. It's steadfast love. Some other translations translate this word loving kindness. Some just translate it love. Some, I've seen some that translate it faithful love or loyal love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. You've got to say it like you're clearing your throat. 
I'm probably not going to do that all morning this morning because I probably won't be able to talk, but that's how it's pronounced. Um, as Steve pointed out earlier this week, sometimes you'll sp- see it spelled like with a K-H at the beginning or a C-H to, to kind of get that Hebrew guttural sound. But it's a word that's used 245 times in the Old Testament. And over half those uses are found in the Psalms. Four of them are right here in this psalm. And, and if we're going to understand this psalm, we need to have a better understanding of, of what this Hebrew idea of steadfast love is all about. The word itself has really four different elements to it. And we see these elements all throughout the scriptures. The first one is that it's relational. That this said kind of love, it, it's always involved in a, in a one-on-one relationship. So it's very personal kind of thing. And we certainly see that with God's love for us. It's personal. It's relational with us. The second thing we see about it, it's reciprocal. That that when God shows His love for us, that there's something that we need to give to Him in return, that there's an obligation. There was one, one commentator called it the Hebrew equivalent of an IOU. That because God loves us, we owe Him something in return. And we're going to talk about what that is this morning. The third thing about this has said love is it, it's transitive. That's just a fancy word that means I'm going to pay it forward. That because God has loved me, I have an obligation to turn around and to pay that love forward to someone else. It's not just for me to hoard for myself. And then finally, the last thing about it, which I just talked to the kids about, is it involves action. It's not just words. It's not just thoughts. It's not just feelings. But it involves action. And we're going to see all four of those aspects are wrapped up in in God's steadfast love for us. And we'll see that this morning in this passage. This psalm is actually broken down into into three sections. And it's really pretty easy to identify each of these three sections. It begins with a, a personal section. The first five verses, this is David writing about how God has shown his steadfast love to David. And then in the next section, verses 6 through 11, it moves on and and David writes about how God has shown his steadfast love for the people of Israel. And then finally in the last section that begins in verse 15, he talks about how God's love is, is universal. It's towards all mankind. You'll notice the word man in there. And not only... Not only all mankind here on this earth, but it it even goes towards His creation. It goes towards the heavenly beings like the angels and the angel armies that He talks about there. And when we look at that and we we put all that together, we begin to understand the the main idea that we want to develop here today. We want to understand what is really the antidote to, to my hurts. And it's this, that Jesus gives me love in exchange for my hurt when I choose to fear Him rather than fear those who hurt me. I'm pretty convinced that the reason that we want to strike out and we want to hurt someone else when they hurt us is is largely born out of fear. Not the only thing, but I think that happens a lot. I know that was my case and the the example I, I shared with you earlier. I wanted to strike out at that other person because I was afraid of what that might do to Mary's career. I was afraid of how that might impact me, to be real honest. And the antidote to that, as we're going to see this morning, is not to fear the other person, but to fear God instead. 
Now this psalm is, is a lot different than the psalm we looked at last week, isn't it? I mean, David in this psalm, he doesn't, he doesn't ask God for anything. He doesn't say, man, God, I complain, God, I have enemies after me, I'm being oppressed. We don't know exactly when David wrote this, but he probably wrote it at a pretty good time in his life. It seems like things are going pretty well for David. But David looks back on his life, and he looks back on those times when he was hurting. And he says, you know, God, I am so, so thankful that you were with me during those times. I'm thankful that you gave me your steadfast love at those times when I was hurting. And he looks back and he says, God, you healed my disease. You rescued me from the pit. You took away my despair. And he's grateful for that. And then he moves on to the nation of Israel and he he speaks there about how God had come and, and revealed himself to the people of Israel and how he had loved them. So we see here that that God's love is is wrapped up in all of this. And when he loved the people of Israel, he really answers this question for us. How can God reconcile forgiving our sins on one hand and being a just God on the other hand? And he says that God does that through Jesus. Now obviously David about a thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene, he, he doesn't fully understand what Jesus is going to do when he comes here to this earth, does he? But there are, some, there are some clues in the text here about Jesus and what he is going to do when he comes. I want you to scan through the passage for a moment, and I want you to tell me who is doing all the action here. Is it David? Is it Moses? Is it the people of Israel? Is it the angels? Who's doing most of the action in this passage? Any, any guesses? God, right? It's the Lord that's doing everything. He's the one that's forgiving sin. He's the one that healed David. He's the one that revealed himself to Israel. It's God doing all the action here. And that's a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes to this earth. He comes out of God's love for us. God God initiates the whole thing and it's God who is acting. And it's not, our relationship with God is not based on anything I can do. It's based on what God has done for me. It's based on what He does. And so we begin to get a clue here of what Jesus is going to do. Even though, obviously, David can't see that back on the other side of the cross. The other thing we see here, we talked about the fact that, that this has said love, that it's reciprocal. That it requires something in return for God's steadfast love for us. And four times in this passage, we find what the requirements are, what our obligation is based on the fact that God has shown us His steadfast love. So I want you to see if you can scan through there and pick those out. It, it's usually, those things are usually introduced by a phrase, I'll give you a clue like, to those or on those. So there's four, four times here where we find obligations. Three of them are all the same. I'll also give you that clue. Make, I told you I was going to make you guys work this morning. 
Yeah, to fear the Lord, right? Three times we see to fear the Lord. And one more. Verses 17, 18, about verse 18, I think. What's that? Yeah, to keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. Now, those seem like two different things, right? To fear God, to keep His covenant. But I'm going to tell you this morning, I think they're really connected. And here's why. Remember, we talked about this before in Hebrew poetry, unlike in English where we tend to rhyme words, Hebrew poetry rhymes what? Thoughts or ideas or concepts. And it often does that by taking the same idea and expressing it in a, usually in some kind of a pair with the different words that describe the same thing. And I think that's exactly what's happening here in verses 17 and 18. But what, he's, what David is saying is that, that fearing the Lord, it also involves keeping His covenant and remembering to do His commandments. So really, the whole thing boils down to, as we said this morning, if I want to exchange my hurt for God's love, what I have to do? I have to fear God. So it seems like we ought to spend a little bit of time talking about what does it mean to fear God, right? I think we'd all like to understand that better. I think most people, when they, they think about fearing God, they tend to think of it in terms of, of respect or reverence. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's part of it. But I also think that it probably goes a little bit further than that. And, and maybe even to the point of making some of us a little bit uncomfortable. The word that's used here for, for fear, throughout the Old Testament, it really has three different major meanings. First of all, it can mean terror. It can mean when you, I face a frightening situation that I have this, this feeling of terror. It includes, secondly, the idea of respect, particularly the respect of an inferior given to a superior. Like a slave ought to fear his master. Or a subject ought to fear the king in the sense that they respect them. And then there's also this sense of reverence or awe. That when we're in the presence of of something that's truly great or someone that's truly great, that we have this, this sense of reverence or awe for them. I know for me, I, I often tend to think of the, the fear of the Lord as being something kind of like my fear for my father. You know, when I grew up, I had, I had, I had respect for my father. Absolutely, I had respect for my father. I had reverence and awe for him too. My father wasn't a famous man by any means of the imagination, but I tell you what, those people that knew him, they loved him and respected him. And I always wanted to be the kind of man that, that he was. That was always a goal in my life. So there was that, that sense of reverence. Probably not awe. I think you can only talk about awe when it talks about God. But there was also a sense when I did something wrong, I knew that when I got home and my dad's belt came off, that I was going to get the punishment that I deserved too. So yeah, there's a sense of respect and reverence, but there's also this, this fear that's wrapped up in it. Probably the best definition I found this week of, of what it means to fear the Lord was found on a website called Got Questions. It, it's a really good website if you've never gone there. And here's how they defined fear. It says the fear of the Lord can be defined 
as the continual awareness that our loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything, everything we think, say, and do. Think about that for a minute. If I'm continually aware that God is watching and evaluating everything I do, I'm going to have all three of those aspects of the fear of God involved in my life, right? Now, the good thing is that although I ought to fear the consequences of my sin, I ought to fear the possible discipline of God when I sin, that is completely tempered for those of us who have put in our faith in Jesus by the fact that we know that God has promised to forgive our sin and He's promised to take away the penalty for our sin. But we also know at the same time that God has never promised to take away the consequences of our sin either for us or for the people who are impacted by our sin. And so we ought, to, we ought to fear that. We ought to fear what sin does to our relationship with God. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. So what does this look like in practical terms? If I really fear the Lord, what is my life going to look like? I want to share with you this morning five things that I think ought to characterize our lives if I really fear the Lord. The first one is the one I just mentioned. I should hate sin. I should hate sin. I should see sin, my sin like, like God sees my sin. Pastor Adrian Rogers um, had a favorite phrase he always liked to use. A favorite, a favorite saying. It's one that um, I know Lauren's really familiar with. And one that's always been one of my favorites. Here's what he always said about sin. He said, unconverted sinners leap into sin and love it. Converted sinners lapse into sin and loathe it. See the difference there? Man, if we're, if we're, if we're disciples of Jesus, we ought to hate our sin because we understand what it does to our relationship with God. We understand what it costs God to send His Son to this earth to die on a cross, not because He deserved it, because you and I deserved it. Now the fact is, because we're sinful human beings, we have a sin nature, we're going to sin. But if I really fear God, I'm going to hate that sin in my life. Unfortunately, I've seen far too many people who call themselves Christians who have this mindset. How much sin can I get away with and still be okay with God? Maybe you've seen that too. And I really have to question whether that person really fears God if they have that kind of attitude. If you really understand what sin does, we ought to hate our sin. The second thing that would characterize my life if I, if I fear the Lord is I ought to love His Word. I ought to love His Word. I like what Pastor John MacArthur wrote about the fear of God that I think is really instructive for us here. He, he wrote this. He said, to fear God is to know Him as He is and respond accordingly. And we see some of that here, don't we? In verse 7, he talks about the fact that, that God revealed Himself through Moses to the children of Israel. And, and if we really fear God, we ought to want to know as much as we can about God. Now today, God doesn't, doesn't reveal Himself through Moses anymore, does He? Where does He reveal Himself? He reveals Himself primarily through His Word, the Bible. 
And so if we really want to get to know God, we ought to love His Word. Not just reading it because we have to, begrudgingly, because it's a duty. That's probably an okay place to start, but we've got to get beyond that. We don't just do it when we have some extra timeline around. We do it because we really want to get to know God, and we know the only way to do that is through His Word. So we love spending time in His Word, and we make it a priority in our lives. The third thing that ought to characterize our life if we're, if we're really fearing God is that we take joy in obeying His Word. We saw this here in, in verse 18. It talks about, about keeping His covenant. And I'm going to come back to that idea in a moment because I think there's a, an aspect of that that's changed a little bit in the New Testament for us. But then remembering to what? His commandments. What does it say? Remembering to obey or to do his commands see it's not enough just to read God's word it's not just enough to study it it's not just enough to know it or memorize it we have to actually obey what's in there and we shouldn't do that reluctant reluctantly or begrudgingly we ought to do it out of delight understanding that that's God's very best for us in there and if we so if we fear God we're going to take joy in obeying his word Fourth thing that will characterize our lives if we're fearing God is that we're at peace in my trials. We're at peace. This last section of this psalm is really, is really interesting to me and it's really exciting because in that part he talks about how, how God is sovereign over all of his creation. Over the angels, over the angel armies, which is the, the reference to the host there, over, over all that he's created, over all of mankind. God is sovereign over all of that. And if I really believe that, if I really trust in that, that means when I get into difficult situations, I can be at peace because I trust that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over my life, and He's sovereign over everything that impacts my life. John Piper, who's one of my my favorite pastors to quote, he had this to say about the fear of God. He said, the fear of God will drive us to hope in God's steadfast love and not ourselves. I love that, don't you? That if we're really fearing God, when we get in the midst of those trials, we don't, we talked about this before, we don't focus so much on the situation that we're in. We don't focus on ourselves. It drives us to God where He, where he will take that hurt away from us and give us His steadfast love in return. Finally, one last thing is that we ought to love others. Remember at the very beginning we talked about how love, that steadfast love, God's steadfast love, that it's transitive. We use that, that big word which just meant to pay it forward. What that really means for me is that I need to love other people the same way that God has loved me. And that means that I don't just love the people that are nice to me. I don't just love the people that are easy to love. I don't just love the people who who are good to me and kind to me. I have to love even my enemies. Now Jesus, when He told in in the Sermon on the Mount, when He told people, love your enemies, He was only telling them what He had already done. Do you realize that? Every single one of you, every single one of you, including me, every single one of us in this room, every single one of you joining us online, at one time you were an enemy of God. That's what the Bible tells us. And you know what? 
before that ever changed, God loved you enough to send His Son to this earth. That very first Christmas to become Emmanuel, God with us. And He did that for one reason, so that we can love other people the same way that He has loved us. So we've seen this morning that that Jesus gives me love in exchange for my hurt when I choose to fear Him rather than those who hurt me. So what does that really look like for us? I mentioned earlier that I was going to come back to this idea of the covenant that He talks about keeping the covenant there in verse 18. I think that's changed a little bit for us. And I think Jesus made that really clear on the night before His crucifixion as He was celebrating the Passover supper with His disciples. And He instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. He said these words that are recorded for us in Luke chapter 22. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, we don't use the word covenant a whole lot in our our culture today. A covenant is basically an agreement between two parties in which the parties agree to do something for each other. In this case, in the new covenant, what God has done for us is He has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to be born as a human being, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross not because He deserved it, because we all deserve that, and He took that penalty for our sin upon Himself on the cross. Our part of the covenant is simply to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. So if you've never done that, then I, I, I want to lovingly say to you this morning that you're never going to experience the steadfast love of God in the way that He wants you to experience it. It's pretty clear here, isn't it, in verse 18, that the steadfast love of God, it comes to those who fear the Lord and who keep His covenant. And if you haven't kept His covenant by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're not going to enjoy His steadfast love. So I urge you, if you've never done that, please Please do that today. If you don't understand what that's all about, we would love to help walk you through that process. But we can't do that unless you let us know. Just a few moments, I'll I'll let you know how you can contact us so that we could help you through that process. Now, I know most of the rest of you here, you've, you've already made that decision in your life. And for some of you, frankly, you look at this this idea of fearing the Lord, and you look at these five characteristics that we just talked about, and you'd have to say, you know, I think I'm doing a pretty good job here. And if that's the case, then thank God and just keep on doing what you're doing. And letting God take that hurt out of your life and pour His steadfast love into your life. But maybe you also look at that list and you think, you know, there's an area or two or three here that, that frankly, I could, I could do a better job of those things. And if that's the case, then just confess that to God and ask Him to help to begin to develop the fear of the Lord in your life. I'm pretty sure that's a prayer that He will answer. You know, the fact is we live in a world 
where people are going to hurt us. Sometimes the people that we love the most, right? Sometimes people that that at least claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, they're going to hurt us. And when that happens, we have two choices. Either we can try to take care of that on our own and be the hurt people that hurt people, or we can give that hurt to God and let Him give us in return His steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we have sung, as we have listened to your word, I know I'm just overwhelmed by the idea of your steadfast love, Father. Think about how much you love us. That's amazing. And Father, my prayer for all of us who are joined here together this morning, whether it's in person or online, is that we would be able to experience that steadfast love in our lives. And we know that that begins with fearing the Lord. Father, that's frankly a subject that I don't know everything about. I'm still learning how to develop a fear of you. Probably some other people are too. But I pray you would do that in our lives so that we could give our hurts to you, get that steadfast love in return. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.